I'm grateful to be back with uh, with you guys this morning, and I, as always, loved what Bob had to say. Bob, uh, Bob, and I think so much alike that uh, maybe a little scary for both of us. Uh, but but uh, but we, you know, we see the recovery program very similarly, and and that's not unusual. I, I have that same feeling with a, a lot of folks that share, and I'm sure Bob does too. And when I get right down to it, and, and this doesn't mean that I have a better grasp on anything than you do. In fact, I, I think I'll share with you something that an old friend of mine by the name of Creighton P., an airline pilot, the, the captain, used to open his talks with. Creighton used to say that uh, we circuit speakers don't know more about Alcoholics Anonymous than you do. We are not more sober than you are. We are not more spiritual than you are. However, on the whole, we are more enchanted with the sound of our own voices. <laughs> and I expect myself to do that. But uh, I, I genuinely believe that in the end, there's only one spiritual truth. I believe it's here in Alcoholics Anonymous. I believe it's in practically or probably all of the religions on the face of this earth. I have, I'm not one of the ones who's gotten into a religion uh, since I've been sober. Uh, I really believe, and it's important to me, that, that I do pretty well with being quick to see where religious people are right in making use of, of what they offer. But I've had occasion to go to a number of different kinds of religious services since I've been sober. You know, from High Episcopal and Roman Catholic to Pentecostal and, and all sorts of things in between. Uh, and I want to tell you that I have found the spiritual truth in every one of those places. It's packaged very differently, and sometimes it looks like to me it may be under a lot of layers of something else, but the ultimate spiritual truth is there. So my idea is that we're probably going to hear the same truth wherever we go. In fact, uh, I've Dear friend of mine, Winston, sitting up here this morning. Winston and I uh, were stumbling around Nashville trying to get sober together about 25 years ago. And we had lost track of one another. And last night's the first time we'd seen one another in 23 years. Uh, and uh, we had a mutual sponsor. Cherry Carpenter was also a sponsor to Winston. And one thing that Cherry used to say along these lines... Uh, he really did not like you to talk about my program. He would let you know really quickly, partner, your program got you here. <laughs> Just like my program got me here. He'd say there's not but one AA program, and it's numbered. It's 1 through 12. So he let me know, said, you may approach it a little bit differently, but there's only one program for covering. I believe there's only one spiritual truth, and I have no idea how I got off on that, but I'm grateful to be here this morning. And, uh, this will be a very short talk because it's supposed to be on character defects, and of course I have so few of them. Uh, <laughs> sometimes I think I am nothing but my character defects. I mean, I truly do. Sometimes I think I'm absolutely nothing but my character defects. So. And also, I know now that I never have been any good in determining what is a character defect and what isn't. I was exposed to Alcoholics Anonymous for two and a half years 
before I got the slightest inkling how on earth self-will could be a character defect. I was convinced that it was the most important, one of the probably equal to my sterling intellect, my self-will was probably the most important asset that I had in my life. I'm not good at telling what character defects are and what they're not. But let me recap a little bit to how I got to step six and seven. And about the only way I know to talk about character defects is talk about step six and seven. And they have been really, really important in the last 15 years of my life. Um, told you a little bit last night I got sober from a pretty darn low bottom and a, and a pretty hopeless situation. Uh, they got me acting as if, and by the way, with regard to step one, just let me say this. Uh, Getting on my knees morning and night is the second most important thing in mass sobriety every day. The first most important thing in mass sobriety is real simple, and that is today, just for today, with God's help and yours, I'm not going to drink or take dope even if my butt falls off. Some people take the position that Alcoholics Anonymous isn't about not drinking, and I understand where they're coming from. I understand the point they're trying to make, and that point is valid. But I want to tell you that for me it is very much about not drinking. Because if you, if I have checked the spiritual condition with, of my friends that went back out, and it does not enhance your spiritual condition to take a drink. <laughs> In other words, it's absolutely, all the rest of this is icing on the cake. All the rest of it is icing on the cake. And the, the, the trap door is me taking a drink. I take a drink and it's just all gone. And also, I almost died because I had being powerless over alcohol confused with being powerless over my elbow. Uh, I spent two and a half years stumbling around trying to get sober because I thought if Alcoholics Anonymous didn't immediately make me want to stop drinking, it wasn't working. And it was really a pretty good excuse. After all, I'm powerless over alcohol, so and I'm an alcoholic, so what alcoholic's supposed to do is drink, here I go. I couldn't get sober until I realized that I was going to have to do the first mature things I'd ever done in my life, and I believe that with all my heart. I was 37 years old. And for two or three months, I had to do what I consider are those first mature things. I had to do some things I really didn't want to do. And I had to not do some things I really, really wanted to do. I remember sitting in rooms in Nashville and feeling like if I didn't get something to relieve that that turmoil, that unbearable pain inside me, that I was just going to explode and splatter all over the walls and ceiling. And having been given that beautiful gift of being able to sit there and say, all right, let's just see if we blow up and splatter all over the walls and ceiling. Now, if anybody's new, please don't sit out there thinking, my God, this man's saying I've got to be miserable for the rest of my life wanting to drink. By the grace of God, when I was two or three months sober, I added to my prayer, God, please don't let me want to drink or take dope today. And that's worked every single day for over 24 years. I haven't wanted to drink or drug for 24 years. Have I thought about it? Good God, yes. Uh, I, I, there may be alcoholics who never think about drinking, uh, but it's hard for me to imagine because that memory of what that stuff used to do inside me of how it would blossom in my, in, in my insides and how it would calm those voices and that, that racket in my head and what it would do, that memory still comes to me unbidden sometimes. 
You know, it just comes back. That memory is there. But thinking about drinking, wanting to drinking are far too far different things. So I don't want to scare you guys to death. You, you don't have to live a life of, uh, of white knuckle sobriety, at least based on my experience, you certainly don't. But I would never have lived to get to the point where that could happen if I hadn't finally realized that I couldn't abdicate the responsibility for what I put in my body to either you guys or this higher power thing you were babbling about, that I was gonna, that I was gonna have to be responsible for that myself. But anyway, they got me through, uh, step two, and by the way, with my step two on we agnostics, and agnostic was, would have been, uh, a, a very liberal way of describing my view of God and things spiritual when I got here. Uh, it, it insulted my intellect for anybody to mention it. Um, what was necessary for me with the second step was to become, become willing to act like I believed that there was a possibility that there was something there that would happen. That's what it was. And that was the hook that I had to jump through. When I began to be willing to get down on my knees, even though I didn't believe there was anything there that would respond to me, uh, and say the words, even though I didn't believe they would do any good. That was what I needed to do. Um, they led me through the third step. Of course, we talked about that last night. And then uh, I, and I think I mentioned at the end of my little spiel last night that the, right at the end of the third step, as the book goes into the fourth step, it says, third step won't amount to a hill of beans unless you do a fourth step at once. And, of course, sure enough, eight months later at once, I did it. Uh, and they uh, they led me through steps four and five, and and I did those. Book tells us exactly what to do after we're done with four and five, and, and I had formed a picture of what a spiritual dawn ought to look like in the course of doing four and five. So I went home, took my book down from the shelf. Uh, I don't think I really had a shelf, so I took it off the bedside table. Uh, and and, and uh, I reviewed the first five proposals, making sure that I hadn't skimped on anything, and. Uh, Sure enough, there was step six and seven, almost a half a page on page 76 devoted to it. Uh, and I flew past six and seven and believed that what six and seven were was where, with God's help, I went to work on me to get rid of those character defects that were inconsistent with this picture of a spiritual dawn that I had formed when I did my fourth and fifth steps. And until I was nine years sober, I not only didn't know there was anything wrong with that, I thought it would have been irresponsible to take any other view of the things. So with God's help, now I had gotten that far on the spirituality that I had to have some help from God. (laughs) I went to work on me to make me into what I had decided a spiritual dawn ought to be. Well, the first nine years of my sobriety were wonderful. You know, the book talks a couple of different places about being rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence. And I want to tell you, if you're new, that's not just some fancy words that Bill Wilson is using. I have lived in fourth dimensions of existence probably a couple of hundred times since I've been sober. I will give you some bad news. It's been my experience that they don't last, that you have to go back and do more work to get back in another fourth dimension of existence. But there was a world of fourth dimension of existence. I, I'm, I'm a lawyer, and I, have, of course, had lost my law license and uh, didn't think I would ever get a law license back. In fact, if I'd made a list on my first sobriety anniversary of the 100 things I was most likely to do for a living in this life, 
practicing law would not have been on it. I thought it was absolutely impossible. Uh, my law license got put back in order by purely, by the way, as a byproduct of steps eight and nine. I am absolutely convinced that if I had made it my objective to get a law license back, I not only would never have gotten it back, I would have died of ego and alcoholism in the process. It was purely a byproduct of steps eight and nine. So when I was a little less than two years sober, I went back to my home in Louisville. I'd gotten sober in Nashville, Tennessee, scared to death, didn't think Louisville AA would work. Uh, started going to those dumb old Louisville meetings that I didn't think could possibly be right for me, uh, and they worked just fine, thank you. Uh, second month I was in town, by God incidents, I talked at the Kentucky State AA conference in front of 2,000 people, and people started saying nice things to me. Will you be my sponsor? Will you talk here? Will you talk there? Will you do this? That same month, I saw my only child. Well, she's not my only child now, but she was for 21 years, and uh, I had not seen or talked to her for over three years at that time. Uh, I saw her the second month I was back in town. Two months later, Dana moved in with me. Uh, some of you folks have met Dana. She has been to Richmond with me to, to an AA deal. Uh, and uh, she lived with me all through high school, and uh, Dana's been in Al-Anon over 20 years, and, and we are dear friends, and uh, she gave me my first blood grandchild last April and is scheduled to give me my second one this coming May, uh, and we talk a lot about program and, and God and, and higher power. I started making a little money right away, so the first thing you knew after I got back to Louisville, I, I was... Uh, driving decent cars and wearing decent clothes. Uh, my financial picture didn't get great all at once. Uh, when I was three and a half years sober in October of 1984, uh, my sponsor, Cherry, uh, and my attorney and I got on a phone conference. And we decided that in three and a half years of sobriety that my financial picture had improved to the point where I could file a Chapter 11 bankruptcy without getting indicted. So it took me three and a half years sober to work up to a formal bankruptcy where I paid back 100 cents on the dollar of everything that I owed. Uh, it took uh, four years of litigation before the plan could get approved, and I made the last payment on the financial wreckage of my past the month that I was 15 years sober. Um, but for you new folks, I didn't live in misery. I didn't live in want. I had a lot of material things. I was happy. I was free. And I lived without fear of economic insecurity for a good deal of that time. You don't have to wait until all the external things get straight to find the peace in this program. Thank God you don't. So uh, don't get scared. But, but the picture I'm painting, even though that was going on, things are going great. Uh, and uh, people start, you know, really, really saying nice things to me AA-wise. The bar association that had kicked me out, or uh, just really I was in, in such disrepute with it, it's unbelievable. My bottom was not quiet. It was loud uh, in public. Uh, and uh, and that bar association began to do things like, hey, Don, come to the state bar convention and, and tell your story there, and we're going to give people ethics credit on continuing legal education for listening to it. Uh, they began to put me on committees. They made me chair of the Citizens for Better Judges in Louisville, where we interviewed people that want to be judges and determined whether or not they were qualified. Uh, they made me a master at the end of court. All these things were going great. But... The first nine years of my sobriety, relationships with the opposite sex, and financial chaos 
almost killed me. They very nearly beat me to death. I would be, and I don't know about all these pop psychology theories, but I've heard that uh, we may stop maturing emotionally when we start drinking alcoholically. And if that's true, I stopped maturing emotionally when I was about 12 or 13. So by the time I'm back in Louisville, I'm, you know, 15, 16 years old emotionally. Some woman would pay some attention to me, and uh, and I want to tell you when I swore undying love, that, that lie detector needle wouldn't have moved. I mean, I could not have been more sincere in my vow of undying love. And a week to three weeks later, I would wake up and think, if I don't get away from her, I'm going to die. You know, if I, if I spend one more minute with this woman, I will absolutely die. And, and, and it resulted in a pattern of behavior that was really inconsistent with the spiritual giant image I was building here. You know? uh, the more money I would make, the, 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 the wilder my financial chaos would get. Uh, it was just, just insane. Now, the character defects, you know, I told you I'd blown through six and seven. I was working on those character defects. Whatever character defect was making my self-centered butt uncomfortable, I would grab it by the collar. And let me tell you what I would use on it. I would use rigorous honesty. I would use the steps. I would use prayer. I would use meetings. I would do inventories on it. I would worry sponsors to distraction. I would dominate discussion meetings. And I would get some occasional outside counseling. And I'd have that character defect slammed up against the wall, and I'd say, come here, God, give me a little help, and we'll get rid of this sucker. And God never showed up, and I didn't know what was wrong. Now, spending a couple of days with me, you all might get a hint sometime, somewhere in this, that under just the right conditions, I probably have the capacity to be just a wee grandiose uh, it was kind of going through my mind that I was like Moses looking at the promised land. That what God had done with me, he was taking me up and said, oh yeah, yeah, I'll let you get sober, butthole. I'll let you get the law license back. You know, people saying nice things about you and all that sort of thing. But I want you to look down there at those people with some sanity in their life. You didn't think you were really going to slide on all that crap you did, did you? He said, I want you to just look at that. You can't have it. Well, I didn't know what was going on, and Cherry had died uh, when I was about eight years old. And I always had a Louisville sponsor after I moved to Louisville. In fact, I, I have had two sponsors, one local and one away for practically all of my sobriety. Uh, and, uh, but my, look, my Louisville sponsor and I had gotten to be buddies. Uh, Bernie and I were just buddies. I mean, if, if I had a financial problem, poor Bernie would consider loaning me money. I have sometimes wondered what would have happened if I'd asked Cherry Carpenter to borrow a dollar. But, but it would not have been pretty, I assure you. <laughs> and, and I need, I need both kinds of sponsorship. So I talked to the conference up someplace in Indiana, ran into Tom B. from up outside of Cleveland, Ohio, and I liked Tom. That was April of 90. Cherry had been dead a while. And, and Tom said, sure, I'll be a sponsor. And, uh, Two or three weeks later, in May of 1990, I flew up there. And I had briefed Tom about the fact that I, these character defects just, it, it wasn't a matter that they weren't going away fast enough. It just wasn't changing. 
I mean, it was absolutely no progress on In fact, it seemed to be going backwards. And it seemed to be just the huge hole that was absorbing everything. In fact, I, I was dying. It was so embarrassing. I had already become a circuit speaker. I was speaking all over everything, and I was sponsoring 40 to 50 people. And I'm dying inside, just absolutely dying. Well, I flew into Cleveland, and Tom had been sober 29 years at that time, and the old boys that were with him treated him like a newcomer. They, they really did. Uh, there was an Akron-Cleveland golf tournament for AA uh, going on in Cleveland that weekend, and I don't play golf, uh, but a lot of the AA members in Akron-Cleveland do. I met one old man who had drank with Dr. Bob that weekend. Well, Tom had kind of briefed them about what was going on in my life, I guess, because he and three or four others picked me up at the airport, and back then you could come to the gate. And we didn't get out of the airport for one of those old clowns said, oh, sober about nine or ten years. Said that's about the time most folks begin to look at steps six and seven. Well, I thought, this old fool doesn't know who he's talking to. I must have been, by that time I'd listened to probably 50 to 105 steps, you know, and, and all this other stuff going on. And, uh, before I left there that weekend, I began to realize that I needed to look at six and seven. Now, this is really important to me that I communicate this. They made it very clear to me that you don't have to stay sober nine or ten years before you approach step six and seven appropriately. But if you don't approach them appropriately, nine to ten years seems to be about the time we run into an absolute brick wall. Uh, Bob spoke last night, I think it was, about the second surrender, and I think that may be very related to the second surrender. And that's a burning bush weekend for me, and I don't want to repeat what I said last night, but but you know I said last night, I've never seen a burning bush in full conflagration. I see them as smoking a little bit. You know, I have those head slappers. Man, that's life-changing. Yeah, I'll do that. But it's only the one out of 300 that I get out my bellows and start fanning that it means something, that it really does become life-changing. And I got out my bellows and I started fanning that one. And, and here's some of the things that I began to realize. And remember last night I said that words are so important to me in sobriety because I found out that things and people tend to be to me just precisely what I call them. What I name them is going to be its reality. And, and uh, a number of you guys here know my dear friend Billy H. from Louisville. And I have his express permission to tell this anytime. <laughs> Billy claims I'm his sponsor, and uh, he's in the same business I'm in. Billy called me up about six or eight years ago in the morning and said, Don, it's awful. Said, my secretary is stealing from me, and I'm $60,000 overdrawn at the bank. And I said, well, Billy, that's that's a mess. Uh, but I knew Billy was capable of a wee bit overstatement at times of, uh, of what was wrong, so I, I began to kind of cross-examine Billy. Lois, who'd been his secretary for years and years, and who he had always told Lois, if you need to write your paycheck early, well, Billy doesn't want to fool checks, so Lois has to write all of them. Uh, if you want to write your paycheck early and need to some week, don't worry about it. Lois had written her paycheck on Wednesday instead of Friday, and that was his secretary stealing from him. And he owed $60,000 on an equity line at the bank, and that was his $60,000 overdrawn at the bank. And the point I'm making is that Billy was much more comfortable 
when we got him adjusted to Lois having written her check two days early and owing the bank $60,000 than he was when his secretary was stealing from him and he, and he was overdrawn $60,000. Uh, so where, where I'm going here is with the word realize. Um, all my life, if I said I realized something, it meant the same thing as saying I know something. Hey, guys, realize is a form of the word real. When I have realized something, that literally means that that that's become real inside me. And the stuff I've known for 30 years, I haven't realized. You see, as far as knowing what this book says, and it's less than half a page, about six and seven, I know that. As far as having listened to great speakers talk about six and seven in that first nine years, I had done that. Reading the 12 and 12 on six and seven, which, by the way, I recommend. Uh, I'm not a... I'm... I'm for the 12 and 12. I like the 12 and 12, but I'm not a huge 12 and 12 fan. If there's any inconsistency that I see between the 12 and 12 and the big book, I ignore the 12 and 12 and go with the big book. Uh, and I'm, I'm not saying this to be nasty, but it's just the truth. In my view, Bill Wilson was inspired by God when he wrote the big book, and he was being sponsored by a psychiatrist when he wrote the 12 and 12. <laughs> <laughs> But the 12 and 12 is very helpful, especially in light of the fact that we've got such a, a sparse amount in the big book with regard to 6, six and 7. Um, so I could have quoted the seventh step prayer to you backwards. I could have sat down at a table with you. If you had given me five minutes, I could have stopped at the last, started at the last word and worked far, you know, worked to the first word. So I knew it really, really well, but I didn't realize that that prayer really means what it says. You see, that prayer doesn't ask God to remove all my defects of character. And it certainly doesn't ask God to remove the defects of character that stand in the way of, that are making my self-centered but uncomfortable. And let me talk about that a minute. And it certainly doesn't ask God to remove the ones that are inconsistent with my idea of what a spiritual don ought to be. It asks God to remove each and every defect or every single defect of character that stands in the way of my usefulness to God and my fellows. And I've got some problems with that that I'll, that I'll, I'll get to in a minute. But let me, now let me talk to you first about trying to get rid of the character defects that are making me uncomfortable. And for nine years, I thought, well, after all, pain is the touchstone of growth. You know, I could have, I could have given you an ex, could have given you an excellent argument why certainly if it's causing me pain, that means God wants it removed. Uh, let me tell you something. If I'm praying for a defect of character to be gone because I want it gone, because it's making me uncomfortable, I'm making precisely the same spiritual mistake as if I were praying for a bright red Ferrari. I'm praying for my own selfish ends. And the book tells me it doesn't work. I can easily see why. Well, it took me nine years to easily see why. And that's not peculiar, by the way, to the, to the sixth and seventh step. Let, let me digress a little bit. Third step. Talked about, talked about it last time. Take away my difficulty. Not so I can be spiritual. Not so I can stay sober but so that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of your power, your love, and your way of life. Even the ninth step, 
Everybody knows the ninth step's all about putting our past in order, right? Nah. Book tells us just precisely what the real purpose is on page, I think it's 77. It says, at the moment we are trying to put our lives in order, but this is not an end in itself. Our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. Here's the bottom line. My illness is selfishness and self-centeredness. book tells me that clearly. That is the root of my illness. And Lord, I want to successfully treat it with obsession on self. It just, seems, it just seems un-American that there's not some way I can successfully treat this deal by obsessing on myself because I love obsessing on myself. And besides, obsessing on myself makes me so exquisitely miserable, I just hate to let it go. Uh, you know, obsessing on myself can create hell for me. That, that's where, I don't know, there may be a hell down somewhere with a bunch of flames. I don't know. I don't think about that much. But I'll tell you one thing. There's a hell in here. And how I get there is when I turn inward on myself and I obsess on myself. And I obsess on myself in some really sophisticated ways. Since I've been sober, I have dressed self-obsession up in spiritual clothing and figured it might work that way. I have dressed it up in psychological clothing and tried some way by obsession on self to successfully treat an illness that is selfishness and self-centeredness, and I can't do it. It's like trying to put out a fire with gasoline. And, you know, you hear people say that Alcoholics Anonymous is a selfish program. And I, I understand where they're coming from. And I don't, well, I don't, I'm not saying, I'm not suggesting people shouldn't say that. It makes a valid point. The valid point it makes is if I don't take care of my sobriety and stay sober, I'm no good to anybody, including myself. But on the other hand, it's not a selfish program. It's a selfish illness. And my recovery is from me turning outward to you and trying to be concerned with your needs and from me turning to my God and trying to take that stitch in the next right place and do God's will. I cannot successfully treat this thing by obsessing on self. I don't care how I address that obsession up. Well, as they led me through that weekend in... Uh, in Cleveland, and and things began to happen after. Here's here's some of the things that came to light. Not only was I praying for the wrong thing, praying for my own selfish ends. You see, I don't know which character defects need to leave. Need to leave. I believe that it is almost certain that Al would not have called me, and I would not be here this weekend. If I hadn't had character defects persist so long into sobriety, so painfully and so embarrassingly, and somehow I was able, by the grace of God, to get some better on that and get some relief, and that's what I've got to share. That's what I've got to be helpful to you guys with. And I can't see that when I'm going through it. You see, my problem with perfection, too, as far as this picture of what a spiritual darn ought to be, I've thought all my life my problem with perfection is my inability to attain it. Make no, make no mistake, I am unable to attain perfection, but that doesn't matter. We never get there. My problem with perfection is my inability to recognize it. You see, if God gave me the power to become anything or anybody that I thought I ought to be right now, I said, Don, I'm tired of messing with you. This is too big a job. 
you call the tune. You become whoever and whatever you think you ought to be. I would be like a blind dog in a butcher shop. I have absolutely no idea who and what I'm supposed to be. And now as far as this, uh, me going to work on me with God's help, the 12 and 12 makes a specific reference to a big old book that is not conference approved. Uh, and the, uh, the big book makes a reference to it in Bill's story where Bill's running through the part that, that corresponds to what we now call the steps. What they're referring to is of myself I am nothing. The Father does the work. For the first nine years I was sober, I knew that was there. But my brain edited that. My brain edited that to read, of myself I am not enough and I have to have some help from God. And that's not what it says. It says, of myself I'm nothing. The Father does the work. You see, I can't any more successfully work on any of my other character defects than I was able to work on drinking and taking dope. Whatever gets lifted out of me is going to be lifted out by grace. And it's going to be done by grace as a result of me coming as a little child and following directions that usually I will not understand. It's not going to happen by great psychological spiritual insight on my part. It certainly is not going to happen with self-knowledge and it's not going to happen based on merit for working so hard on it. You see, and that brings me to something and I really, really, I mentioned last night, I really don't want to be controversial, but there's no way I can convey my experience, strength, and hope without talking about this, and I know that it may step on somebody's toes, and I don't mean to. Let me tell you, going in, that page 133 of this book tells me that this this earth is filled with great doctors and counselors, and that I should not hesitate to use them. And I believe page 133 with all my heart. Uh, I'm not one of these sponsors who tries to, te- to, pra- tries to practice medicine. Uh, if one of my sponsors comes to me and says, my doctor says I need to take so-and-so, I'm apt to say, my God, man, I'm a lawyer. Do what your doctor says. You know, if that's what your doctor says, do. Uh, I, I, I also, uh, you know, I don't tell sponsors of mine not to go to counseling. Now, what I have found and what I do share with anybody that I think it's appropriate to share with, if you got something to go to counseling with, that's great if it's something other than your alcoholism. But my experience with counseling and psychiatrist and alcoholism is that it's about like taking a jellyfish to an orthopedic surgeon. <laughs> There's just absolutely nothing in us that they can work on. Now, it would be an interesting experiment if it had ever happened, if it had ever one time happened in the history of the world. It would be an interesting experiment to see if it could do any good if one of us told them the truth. But since that has never happened and never will, we'll never know the answer to that one. Uh, I also am not big on self-help deals. Uh, I don't believe Alcoholics Anonymous is a self-help program. I tried every way I knew to help myself before I got here. I believe Alcoholics Anonymous is a God-help program for humanly helpless people. I believe that with all my heart. But what I'm getting to here is... uh, For my part, God, please deliver me from issues. I don't want any issues in my life. And let me tell you why I don't want any issues in my life. In 24 years sober, 
just a rough estimate is that I've heard about 20,000 issues. I have never heard one single issue that doesn't fall right square into one of the three parts of the fourth step Alcoholics Anonymous. It involves either resentment, fear, sexuality, or some combination of those things. I have never heard one single issue that does not involve obsession on self and a demand for a person's will to be done despite what God's will may be. But here's the real reason I don't want any issues. Of those 20,000 odd issues that I've heard, I am unaware of a single one of them that has been satisfactorily and permanently resolved. I don't have a clue what to do with issues. So I don't want issues. I want character defects. Because I'm told what I can do with character defects, and I'm told how to handle them. Well, as that weekend began to move on, um, I began to hear things like, uh, you know, Don, you need to go back and look at your third step again. You need to quit trying to figure out the patterns of your life. Uh, they would tell me that when I was trying to figure out the patterns of my life, I was in worse shape than a chimpanzee trying to master quantum physics. Uh, I would hear things like, you need to come, come back to your God as a little child. You need to let go of who and what you think you ought to be. And you need to let that little spark of the divine, and Bob was talking about that this morning, that little spark of the, because Chuck talked about it, and that's where I got it. Uh, uh, that spark of the divine in me that knows nothing about the pattern, but it knows where to take that next stitch. And I'm thinking first, you're talking about sainthood, guys. You're talking about somebody who is so saintly that they don't care what God does to them. If God makes them a missionary in China or puts them on the corner handing out watchtower pamphlets or something, you know, you, 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 you're talking real sainthood here. I can't do that. And they said, no, we're not done. Said, you go back to Louisville and you start acting like a fellow would act if a fellow believed that and it'll work just fine. Thank you. Said, if you keep waiting until your mind has gotten there so that you actually feel that and believe that and want that before you start taking those stitches in the right place, it ain't ever going to happen. But if you'll go back to Louisville and start stumbling in the direction that you believe a fellow would stumble, if that was what a fellow wanted out of this deal, it'll work just fine. And then I said, wait a minute. I've been working my butt off for all these years. And things are in this big a mess. If I stop trying, it'll be like the dam will open up and it'll just all come washing over me. He said, Don, when you turn booze and dope over to God, effectively, finally, did you give yourself permission to drink or take dope if you want to? And I said, no. And they said, right. When you come to your God and say, Mom, Dad, here I am. I don't have any idea what this mess is. I don't know how we got the mess made. I don't have any idea how to clean the mess up. But I'm going to come to you as a little child, and I'm going to quit trying to figure it out. And you just try. You tell me where to stitch, and I'm going to try to overcome my brain because my brain, my alcoholism—they're one and the same thing—is the enemy of the right thing. And you know, I used to think the enemy of the right thing would usually be things like greed and lust, and it is about one percent of the time. Ninety-nine percent of the time, the enemy of the right thing is fear. It's fear that if I take that stitch where I know inside me it's the next right thing to do, that the pattern won't be to suit me. 
that I'll lose something I don't want to lose or I won't get something that I want to get. And about 80% of the time, underlying all of it, is the really big fear, when I get honest, I'll look bad. (laughs) In all of my fears, practically all of them, in there just a huge component of it is that ego that I'll look bad if it happens that way. So they said, no, Don. Said, you've got to couple this coming to God like a little child and start stumbling in that direction with really a renewal of your third step with the renewal of your commitment to try to do that next right thing when the paths divert from one another, when the right thing and what you want to do are two different paths, you you need to really reaffirm that you're going to try to do take that stitch in the next right place instead of where your brain tells you you ought to take it for your own selfish ends. Um, I started stumbling that way. Uh, and Lord, is it stumbling. I mentioned this last night, and... And I don't get into the self-help books, uh, and, and I don't, I've got sponsees that have got, uh, stacks of them. In fact, my boy Billy, uh, got into non-materialism about four years ago, uh, and, uh, the first, uh, this is, this is the truth. The first month of Billy's obsession with non-materialism, he bought $1,800 worth of books on non-materialism. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And I, every, he spoke in here with me. We love one another. And if he were sitting right beside me, he would he would laugh with me when I tell that. He would tell it on himself. So I'm not being not being ugly in any way. But uh, even though I've never read this book, probably won't. I love the title of the book, "The Spirituality of Imperfection," because you see, when I finally began to come to believe, there was something in me that felt like that I had been so bad. That when that God forgave me and let me live and let me get sober, that I was on intensive probation. You know, that if I'm, that God was up there thinking, man, I, if, I wish I weren't God sometimes because forgiving this little devil and letting him live is just almost more than I can take. And I have got him on a short leash and I'm set up here watching. If he steps a toe over the line, I'm going to squish him like a bug and love every minute of it. That's an uncomfortable way to live. And again, Bob in different words touched on this morning. I can't exhaust my God's forgiveness. My God's forgiveness is absolutely inexhaustible. And if I take a drink and I die, let me tell you what I am convinced will kill me. There's a part of me that tells me every day and some part of my life Don, you have screwed up so badly that there's no longer a next right thing to do. You are so far outside of God's will that you are out of the fold and you can't get back. There's no use anymore. And I don't know about a devil. You know, I'm, I don't know whether or not I believe in a devil. But I know for me, that's the devil. That's the devil telling me that there's no use because I can't exhaust my God's forgiveness. Let me tell you something. There is a next right thing to do in the middle of robbing a bank. I can't get far enough from my God's will that there's not always a next right thing to do. And it's just absolutely astounding how quickly things usually straighten out when I'm in these hopeless situations so far from my God's will that I can never get back. Sometimes I'm feeling fine and rolling right along in five minutes. And five minutes before I was locked out into the darkness forever, 
you know, it was just absolutely futile to try to take that little stitch here and keep going. But but it's just a miracle, and it's always there. And I talked last night about stumbling a couple of steps in the right direction, getting knocked over by self-will, forgetting for a moment that I ever did a third step, that I ever did a seventh step, that there's any such thing as an eleventh as a, an eleventh step to live on. And I said, and it's true, there are days when I do that fifty to a hundred times. When I have to get up and dust myself off and say, Mom, Dad, I screwed up again, excuse me. Stumble another couple of steps in the right direction, get knocked over again, and, and it turns out that's fine with my God. It seems like my God is just perfectly all right with that persistence. And I believe with all my heart that that's the only spiritual growth of which I'm capable. Is that keeping on persistently stumbling in the right direction. Uh, As I went back and started stumbling in that direction, and I'm, I don't want to sit up here and give you a bunch of things that will sound like I'm bragging. I'm very self-conscious about some of these things, and I truly am. But uh, God fixed my financial deal. God fixed my financial deal beautifully. Uh, it didn't all happen in one leg, but I want to tell you how God fixed my financial deal. There was a young woman working in my office for another lawyer, not for me. And she got fired on conditions that I thought were really, really unfair, and she was going to lose her automobile and needed about seven or eight hundred dollars to to keep her automobile. And I went home and talked to my wife and said, Sharon, I really feel sorry for this little girl. Let's offer to to loan or give her seven or eight hundred dollars. I went in the next morning and I, I made the offer and she was so grateful she cried um, but said, no, I don't want it. I'm just going to let the car go. I was sitting in my office less than 30 days from that time, about 8 o'clock in the morning, and she called me and referred me a case that about 8 or 9 months from that point, that point generated a fee that paid off the rest of my wreckage of my past, caught me up with the internal revenue, was twice as much as I'd ever made in a year in my life. So what got me straight wasn't hard work. It wasn't industriousness. It certainly wasn't out-thinking, out-performing, and out-maneuvering. It certainly wasn't intelligence. It was a little act of kindness. A little act of kindness. I was, Winston and I were talking last night, and I was telling him, you know, sure, I know how it works in terms of knowing what I need to do but having any idea of the mechanics of how this deal works, of the causal effect of A causing B, I ain't got a clue. It is an absolute mystery to me, and I no longer care. I'm like a little child with one of those follow-the-dot pictures who has no idea of what the picture is supposed to be. But if that kid will draw the line from this dot to that dot to that dot to that dot, the way the instructions say the picture will emerge. And that's the way it's worked for me. This last 15 years, the stumbling in that right direction, and there's never been a time when it felt like to me I was doing it well enough that it would do any good. But it has it's just thrown me into fourth dimensions of existence that are unbelievable. I've mentioned some of the things the Bar Association has done. The coup de grace was about a year ago. Uh, the president of the Kentucky State Bar called me and said... Uh, Don, we've got a vacancy on the ethics committee. <laughs> and the, 
for the first 10 years I practiced law, the only people I were more frightened of than the State Ethics Committee were the FBI and the IRS. But, uh, and, and now I are one, as, as it says. bottom line is just simple. In May of 1990, if I'd made a list of everything I wanted in every area of my life, and God had said, Don, I am sick of your whining. I'm going to give you exactly what you have ordered here. I would have shortchanged myself in every single area of my life. Now all this, let me just say a couple of other things. Uh, I don't believe this would have worked for me if I hadn't kept on going to four or five meetings a week. I don't believe this will work for me if I hadn't kept on being real active in sponsoring people and trying to be sponsorable myself. I don't think there's any big rock candy mountain where I can where I can abandon the rest of what I need to do with regard to the fellowship and the program and get it on. But this view of six and seven was something that I needed to add to all that. Now, when I get in trouble today, uh, and I've already told you all, I'm not one of these fellows who claims to never get in trouble. I get in trouble. I feel more trouble than I've had. Uh, well, you, have you ever noticed the phenomenon that we, every day, all day, we ask one another how we are doing, and we immediately told by the person we've asked how they are feeling. And in Louisville, we've tried to work on that. We'll catch the other and say, Winston, if I want to know how you're feeling, I'll ask you. I ask you how you're doing. <laughs> and, and, and so the feelings get fouled up much more than, much, much more than the, uh, than, than the actions do. And that's a blessing because you see, a great lesson that I've learned is that being crazy is harmless. Uncomfortable is the devil, but harmless. It's acting crazy that will kill me. You see, they don't, they won't put me in the asylum for being crazy. They'll put me back in the asylum for acting crazy. And the way I learned that was a fellow told me one time that they didn't put me, I was in an asylum. The fellow said, they didn't put you in here for being crazy. And I said, well, they put me in here for being crazy. And no, they didn't. They put you in here for acting crazy. And said, furthermore, they won't let you out of the asylum for being sane. They'll let you out of the asylum for acting sane. And that rang the bell because by that time I'd gotten out of half a dozen asylums when I knew I was as mad as I had her by, by acting sane. So, so what that means is that if I'll keep on and just keep doing that right thing and not let, see, without divine intervention, how I feel is the center of the universe for me. Without divine intervention, how I feel is the most important thing in the world. And I've spent my whole life, drunk and sober, trying to think my way into right acting. Trying to get somebody to change something inside me. Uh, and let me talk about that, trying to get stuff changed inside me. And I'm going to shut up early, for, believe it or not. But uh, I have some really bad news I want to share with you guys. And this is terrible news. And it's the result of many years of really intensive research. You see, at the core of my disordered ego is this 
insane conviction that what I think, feel, and believe is the center of the universe. And if I'm going to do right, what we've got to do is get me fixed inside so I feel like doing right so I do right. In fact, all my life it was very clear to me what the difference between good people and me was. They felt like doing right. And if we could just get me fixed so I'd feel like doing right, why well, I'd be good people too. Looking back on it, I know they may not have felt a bit more like doing right than I did. They just did right whether they felt like it or not, and that made them good people, and the fact that I didn't made me bad people. Whether or not I'm good or bad people doesn't have a thing to do with how, with whether I feel like doing right. But it, that's so ingrained in me that right today at 24 years sober, if I wake up and I don't want to do the right thing, what I need to do may just go to work. Every fiber of my being wants to attack it by doing something like, can I clear for Bob or, or Al, uh, help me. I don't feel like going to work. What can we do to fix me so I'll feel like going to work? Well, guys, i got to go to work. What difference does it make whether I feel like going to work? But, but, but I do not come to that conclusion in nature. And over the last 24 years of mass sobriety, I have prayed until I was blue in the face, trying to get me to feel right so I could do right. I have worried sponsors to death on that too, trying to get me to feel right so I can do right. I've done enough inventories that they would, if I were standing up, I am confident they would come to somewhere between my knee and my thigh trying to get me to feel like doing right so I can do right. Uh, I have spent quite a bit of money on outside counseling trying to get me to feel like right so I can do right. And here's the bad news. Nothing one time has ever made me feel like doing right except going on and doing right when I didn't feel like it. And I just absolutely hate that. You know, if what's, if what's making my life a mess is that my bed is unmade, and I just can't seem to get it together to make that bed. I can dominate the discussion meetings. I can worry my sponsor death. I can do inventories. I can get all the outside counseling. I ain't going to feel a bit better until I make up the bed. I simply am not because God's not going to do for me what I can do for myself as a general rule. My God does wonderful things for me. But i got to do the footwork. You know how you turn a toothache over to God? You call a dentist. If you don't believe it, next time you get a toothache, pray and call your sponsor. Now, see, they do, do an inventory on your toothache. So I, I've got to do that action. And I, and I thank all of you, and I'm just so grateful to be here this morning. Bob, it's just an honor to be on the same podium with you. God bless and thank you.